So we're continuing our studies in the book of Philippians, which talks about the secret of joy. I spoke to a wise man last week. We were talking about the words joy and happy. And I used happy last week, but joy is a better word because happy means I'm happy because something happened to me. And if something doesn't happen to you, then you feel worse. But if something does happen to you, you feel better. Joy is a permanent thing that we have all the time. And you remember our text, Philippians 4 verse 4, Rejoice in the Lord always. Again I say rejoice. I call it the 4 by 4 verse, because it can go anywhere. It can go through mud, it can go up hills, it can go down hills, it can go in deserts, it can go in forests. You can have this verse with you all the time. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again I say rejoice. Last week we looked at Philippians chapter 1, Paul's attitude to his circumstances, the circumstances that were around him. And he had some dreadful circumstances. He was separated from his friends, and some of us are separated from friends or family, but he said, I know God will work in you even while away. He who's begun a good work in you will finish it to the day of Jesus Christ. He was also in prison. He felt frustrated. Didn't know, he couldn't have any freedom. But he said all his problems were like what happened to the Roman army when they came to a forest and couldn't get through. They called in these people who chopped down the trees, opened the way to new possibilities. And our problems should be seen not as problems, but as axes that God is going to use to open a pathway for us to new blessings, new possibilities. And often if we didn't have the problem, we would never have that great experience that followed. So Paul has this amazing attitude to his problems. He sees them as God chopping away for him to a new possibility. But today we come to a very serious problem that he faces. When he was in prison, he said, the things that happened to me have happened to further the good news. He had rival preachers that were opposing him, but he said, it doesn't matter. As long as Christ is preached, I don't care what motive they're preaching as long as they preach Christ. We're all in the same team, let's do this together. Today we come to a sad circumstance. He's just said, I have rejoiced and I will rejoice, and he's going to rejoice in this circumstance. Do you recognize this building? Anyone recognize the building? Thanks. All Saints Church in Howick. The oldest building in Manukau. If you want to see the oldest building in Manukau, it's All Saints Church in Howick. But there's a very sad little situation just here. Can you see these metal railings? There's a little tombstone, and it has the names of the three daughters of the Reverend Vicesimus Lush. He came out in 1847 to preach the gospel. A few years later, scarlet fever hit, and three of his daughters died in that epidemic. They died from a simple disease that we treat with antibiotics today, but in those days, it was untreatable. What a tragedy for him to lose his three daughters. And death is that tragedy we all dread. It's a horrible thing, but Paul has a different attitude to death. Paul is facing death himself, and he's going to have to appear before Nero, this emperor, Nero is the worst emperor going. He's a pedophile. He's morally corrupt. 
He's a murderer. He murdered his own mother. And he hates Christians. So Paul is not anticipating standing before this vicious man Nero and is expecting the worst. He expects to hear those terrible words, I sentence you to death. Because he's a Roman citizen, he won't be crucified. He'll have had his head chopped off. He will one day hear the God saying, it is time. He'll be taken out of, the ch- out of the cell. He will shuffle along the road with his chains clanking and jangling out of the main gate of the city, along the main road, the Via Appia that leads to the harbour. At a suitable point, the Roman centurion will say, we'll do it here. They will tie him up. He'll be forced to kneel down. They'll give him a last whipping just for good measure. And then he's got his head stretched downwards waiting for the blow to fall. And this is a lovely sculpture depicting Paul when he's finally executed and the man with a sword or an axe ready to chop his head off. Paul's neck, is his head is extended forwards, extended downwards. He's just waiting for that blow to fall. How does Paul feel about this? How does he feel about the risk of having his head chopped off? Paul says, I'm excited. He says, according to my eager expectation and my hope, that in nothing I'll be ashamed, so that now, as always, Christ will be magnified in my body, whether by death or life. What does Paul mean when he says, I'm excited? He uses the word eager expectation. And that word means to look with your head stretched out. Paul is in the departure lounge of life. He's waiting for the plane to come to take him away. Paul is not sad. Paul is not rushing around trying to read the last magazine and eat some more food before the plane comes to take him. Paul is excited His head is stretched out and he's absorbed with this plane that's coming. He's peering over the heads of the other people in the crowd. Because for him, death is not a plane that's bringing him bad news. It is Jesus coming to meet him and bring him to heaven. So he's waiting with eager anticipation. As Lee was telling us today, We should be focused on Jesus, not focused on what's around us, focused on Jesus because everything else then becomes blurred. Just like these people at a soccer game. Two seconds to go, it's one all. And they're standing on tiptoe with eager expectation to see, is my player going to score or not? And if people in front of them, this is how Paul is anticipating death. He's not looking down at the ground, waiting for his head to be chopped off. He's looking up into heaven, waiting for Jesus to receive him. That's a way to approach death, isn't it? I wonder if he's thinking about Stephen. Do you remember Stephen, the great preacher in the early church? He was arrested and taken to court. And as he stood in front of the crowd... Paul was there. His name was Saul. He was one of the accusers. And when he looked at Stephen, he said, his face is like the face of an angel. 
And Stephen gives a speech in his defense. And at the end of it, you know what he says? In front of this angry crowd, he says, I see heaven opened. And I see Jesus standing on the right hand of God. And as he's filled with the Holy Spirit, he says this, Paul and his friends are so cross, they shut their ears and they rush on him with angry faces. They grab him, take him outside and throw him out of the city. And then they pick up stones to throw at Stephen. And as these stones are landing on Stephen, he's not focusing on the stones that are hitting him. He's not focusing on the angry faces all around him. Do you know what Stephen is focused on? I see Jesus standing on the right hand of God. And he says, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And then he felt his knees. And as he felt his knees, he said, Lord, don't lay the sin to their charge. Except he said it, Lord, lay not the sin to their charge. His voice became incredibly powerful as he saw these angry people and he said, Lord, don't blame them. Just like Jesus said, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. And then it says, he fell asleep. With his face like an angel, he fell to the ground and fell asleep. And that's how death is described for Christians. Death is like falling asleep. And as he fell asleep, Saul couldn't see that his that. Stephen's spirit floated up to heaven. And as Stephen's spirit floated up to heaven, heaven was opened and Jesus was standing to receive the first Christian martyr. And I wonder if Paul is thinking about this now because the shoe is on the other foot. He's not the angry man trying to execute a Christian. He is the man who's likely to be executed by Nero, the worst person going. And I wonder if he's thinking the same thing. And that's why he says, I hope that in nothing I'll be ashamed. I won't be embarrassed. I won't let Jesus down. But with all boldness, Christ will be magnified in my body. What does he mean, Christ be magnified in my body? How can Christ be magnified in your body? I was thinking about this. Because Mary said, what did she say? My soul does magnify the Lord and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. Mary is saying my soul is making Jesus big. Here we have a little boy who's received a Christmas present. For Christmas, <coughs> he was given a magnifying glass and he's running around inside, looking at all the things inside. Then he runs outside and he sees a little bug. Wow, that bug looks impressive. He sees a caterpillar. He sees a flower. And then he sees a butterfly. And he sees the beautiful patterns on, on its wings. And he sees how the magnifying glass makes them look so big. You can see the little veins on the butterfly's wings and the red and the purple and the green dots. And he's looking at this and then he thinks, this is so great, I've got to tell my parents. And he runs inside, Mom, Dad, I never realized how beautiful a butterfly was. I never realized the wonderful colors it had. I never realized how spectacular it is. Are you a Christian magnifying glass? When people see you, do they say, Wow, I never realized how wonderful Jesus was. I never realized how much he loved me. 
I never realized he died on the cross for me. I never realized how beautiful he is. I never realized how many people he healed. That's what it should be. But sometimes it's all about me. And we are so obsessed with our problems and our difficulties, like Paul's circumstances. I'm separated from my friends. I'm frustrated. I'm restricted. I don't know what to do. Rival preachers are getting me down and annoying me. I'm facing death. And we can end up a bit like this. We can get so inflated with our own self that we get... We get inflated like this fox, I think it is. Is it a fox or a wolf? Who knows? Not a very realistic one. But as we think more about ourselves and more about our self-portance and we want everybody to see us, we get bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger. Can anybody see what's immediately behind that fox? I can't see it because he's in the way. He's blocking the view. We should be a magnifying glass so that people say, wow, I didn't realize how big and powerful Jesus was. But sometimes we're like this big fox standing there, so inflated with the sense of our importance, so obsessed with our worries, making sure everybody's seeing me on Facebook, everybody's noticing me, everybody is liking my tweets and my comments, and we're blocking Jesus. Jesus cannot be seen because we're so obsessed with ourselves. And then there's maybe a third group who don't magnify Jesus. Maybe they don't block Jesus because of their um, ego, but they minimize Jesus. Dorian's going to be talking to us later about evangelism, where we're supposed to be lights and showing the world who we are. But sometimes we hide that light under a pot because we don't want people to know we are Christians. So we minimize Jesus. And we don't shine in our area because we're scared people will pick on us. So what is your attitude? Is your goal to magnify Jesus and make him bigger and more important? Or are you so big with your ego and all your worries that you're blocking the view of Jesus? Or are you minimizing Jesus and hiding your light under a bushel? And just imagine if this church... If you look around today, if every single one of us was magnifying Jesus in our school, at work, at home, in the supermarket, each one of us, just imagine the picture that Ormiston and Howick and Packerang and all the other places would have of Jesus. Imagine if we were the light and we took that lid off and let everybody see. The potential of this group is enormous. How many friends have you got? 10, 20, 30 friends? You tell them all about Jesus. Look at the effect it can have around this area. But it can only work if we have the same goal as Paul. Paul is under threat, but he says, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. If you were to ask Paul, what is your goal in life? He wouldn't say, well, my one year plan is this, my five-year plan is this, my ten-year plan is this, or my goal is to have a successful career, my goal is to have a nice house and my family and look after them, my goal is to do well in sport, my goal is to be popular. He doesn't even say, 
I have a 20-point strategy to put systems in place to facilitate the advancement of my personality and my systems. He doesn't even use long, involved words to explain his goal. His goal is one word. One word. Christ. What's your goal? Not some long, detailed explanation. My goal is Christ. When I'm doing my work, I'm not working for my boss. I'm working for Christ. When I'm doing my schoolwork, I'm not doing it to please the teacher or my parents. I'm doing it to please Christ because he wants me to be a good student. So when I tell people I'm a Christian, they say, wow, I can see that. You're just cracking those exams. You're doing so well. When I'm playing sport, my goal is not to be the most famous player on the field. My goal is Christ. When I'm working my business, my goal is not to make a lot of money. My goal is Christ. We serve Christ Jesus. That's what our goal should be. That's what Paul should be. And if our goal is Christ, what does he say? To die is gain. So my goal in living is Christ, and to die is gain. Think of every goal in life. What happens to that goal when you die? Your goal is sport. When you die, can you still play sport? I've never seen a dead person play sport. When you die, if your goal is business, can you still run your business when you're dead? No, it dies. If your goal is popularity, you're not popular anymore, you're not around. Every single goal people have in life dies with them. That's quite sad. It's like you've got to hand all the toys back at the end of the party and leave with nothing. But if your goal is Christ, when you die, you gain because you get more Christ. Now you have Christ some minutes and then you forget him other minutes, but in heaven he's with you all the time. And you gain some other little sort of side benefits and fringe benefits like golden streets, like jasper walls, like pearl gates, like trees that produce fruit every, every month like beautiful fountains and waterfalls, like being able to fly around. Those are just the little fringe benefits. The main benefit is Christ, and more Christ when we die. So that's an awesome and lofty and amazing goal. But now Paul says, you know, I can't decide. My goal to live is Christ and to die is gain. Now what should I do? Is it better if I die? Or if I live. He says, if I, if I live in the flesh, that's the fruit of my labor. I can produce fruit, see more Christians, people build up. But I'm not sure. I'm stuck between two difficult choices. And the word he uses here is for a narrow gorge. Imagine you're walking along this narrow gorge and there's two big cliffs on each side. And they're getting narrower and narrower and narrower and pressing more and more into you. On the one hand, Paul is saying, for me to live is Christ. That's a lovely option. On the other hand, for me to die is gain. I can have Christ, I can have more Christ. Which of the two do I choose? He said, I'm, I'm stuck between these two choices. I don't know how to decide. I'm really perplexed. Which way do I go? Most people wouldn't have this decision, but Paul says, I love life. I enjoy it. And you know what statistics say? Christians are the happiest people. I love that statistic because we're advertised as the sad people with long faces and miserable and make everyone else miserable. Christians are the happiest people. So Paul says, I'm a Christian, I'm the happy person. 
I love my life, but I would love to die too because I'd be with Christ, which is far better. I can't decide. How's he going to decide? And then he says an interesting thing. He says, I have a strong desire to depart and be with Christ, which is far better. What does Paul mean when he says the word depart? We know he's standing with eager anticipation, his neck stretched out, waiting for heaven. What does he mean by the word to depart? I can only explain this with a story. When I was very young, very young indeed, we went on a camping trip. It was so exciting, we got ready for the camping trip, packed the tent, crammed seven of us into a tiny station wagon. We could just have a look over the luggage to see where we were going. We set off in this bumpy, splattery old car and we arrived at the beach, this lovely campsite. And we set up the tent, it was so exciting. I noticed the tent was very moldy because it was a war surplus tent and it had been in storage for years, so it was quite moldy. Lucky none of us had allergies. And I noticed it was quite sort of stiff and not flexible and it had stains on it. And, but we set up the tent, very exciting, went to the beach for the whole day. And as you can see from my skin, I don't tolerate the sun well. And I came home bright red in colour because we'd enjoyed the sun so much. That evening I had blisters this size on my legs. But so nice to get into bed. But we couldn't afford mattresses, so we lay on this grass that was quite quite thick and pricky. And that wasn't good for the blisters. So I was battling to sleep. And then we heard, down comes the rain. The rain is now falling on the tent quite heavily. And Dad had said, never touch the tent when it's raining. But as a child, you're curious. You think, I wonder what he said, is it true or not? So you touch it, nothing happens. Touch it again, nah, nothing happened. No, you know. Get back into bed, try and sleep, and then you hear drip, splosh, drip, splosh. The drips are starting to fall on my head, on my chest. I'm starting to get really wet. Meantime, the insects are getting active. They're all coming into the tent. They don't like the rain outside. Creeping insects, crawling insects, flying insects, biting insects. Mm, mosquitoes flying around, blood dripping everywhere, sopping wet. But it's not over yet. The wind comes up. Flap, flap, flap. The tent starts flapping. This tent's had a hard life and it's flapping like crazy. There are gaps in the tent. The wind is whistling through. And now I'm cold, wet, and the wind is blowing on me. And the insects are biting me. I have the strong desire to depart and be at home, which is far, far better. And what a wonderful day when Dad said, oh dear, the holidays are over, we've got to pack up. Sure, Dad, we'll help. And it was such fun to pack up the tent, get it in the car, pack it away and get home. And as we drove, my head was stretched out looking for home. I was stinking by now. I wanted to have a bath and put on fresh clothes. Got home, had a hot bath, climbed into bed. I have a hot mug of cocoa and listened to the rain on the roof. And the rain on the roof was comforting. This is the word Paul uses. The word to depart means to strike camp. And the reason Paul uses this is because he's a tent maker. And he's built lovely, flash new tents. And when we're born, God builds us a lovely, brand new tent. And you people who are young, 
Be thankful for your young tents that you live in. Your bodies are young tents. They listen to you. They do what they should. They let you go where you want to go. But as you get older, the tent gets older. It starts to crack. It starts to peel. It starts to fade. The tent pole starts to creak. When you walk, there's a bit of a creaking sound and a snapping sound. And you lift up your shoulder and it doesn't go as far as it used to go. And some of the canvas starts disappearing. It gets a bit patchy in places. And tears start to develop. And leaks start to... And all sorts of things. We won't go into too much detail. But the tent gets old. And Paul knew from fixing tents, they get old. And he's saying, I'm in my 60s now, Lord. This body's getting old. My eyes are dripping pus from this this terrible disease I've got. I've got these old scars that hurt. My joints hurt. My joints ache. I've got a strong and powerful desire to strike camp. I've got a strong desire. Lord, won't you just pack up this tent so I can go home to heaven, fly home to heaven to put on my brand new body, my permanent building made of God, my wonderful structure, that glorious body like your body. So Paul has a strong desire to go home. He says this in 1 Corinthians 5. We know if this earthly house of our tent be dissolved, we have a house of God, a building not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. And then he says, in this we groan, waiting to be clothed upon with our body, which is from heaven. And he says, we are confident that while we are present on earth, we are absent from the Lord. And he said, I would rather be absent from the body and present with the Lord. For we walk by faith, not by sight. And as Paul sits there in his chains, thinking about the wonderful possibility of having no more chains, no more pains, up in heaven, he starts to doubt a bit, and he starts to think about it and say, I still haven't sorted out this decision. I'm still stuck between dying and living. I don't know what to do. Because he says, it's probably better for me to stay in the flesh. It's more needful for the Philippians. They'll be very sad if I die. I don't want to leave them, so it's better if I stay behind and I can be fruitful. And the important thing, he says, it's for your joy and for your rejoicing. I want you to be happy. I want you to be glad because you'll be sad if I die, but glad if I stay. So Paul is finally convincing himself that he should stay because then he will be with his friends and able to help his friends, and everybody will be happy. So are we thinking about our own joy or the joy of others? Now, I've got an admission to make, and I have to confess, we must be transparent, I'm not good at cooking. And I'm not very knowledgeable about cooking. But there's one thing I know. It takes three minutes to boil an egg. A soft-boiled egg. Am I correct? I'm very nervous even saying this. Does anyone disagree with that? Three minutes? There's a bit of doubt there. Let's ask the home ec teacher. There we go. I've got the backing. Sorry? <laughs> so Richard's also a star cook then, is he? Yeah. Very good. 
There are different ways of measuring it, and the classical one is called the egg timer, which is an hourglass. It's a glass thing with a very narrow waist. Sort of got a corset on. Can you, uh, there we go. And all the sand starts in the top, so you turn it with all the sand at the top, and you let the sand run to the bottom until the bottom's full and the top is empty. Then you know the egg is boiled. So you put the egg in the pot. This is like a cooking show. You, uh, anyway, you, you, you put the egg in. Um, I think when it's boiling, you, when it's boiling, when, egg is, when the water's boiling, you put it in. Not like me in a hurry, because then it cracks and you get white stuff all over the... And that's not good. So you've got to put it in very carefully and delicately. Then you put the lid on and you put the hourglass. And you wait three minutes and out comes this wonderful egg and you crack it and it's a beautiful soft-boiled egg. But some of us get sidetracked because it's boring. I mean, who wants to sit and watch sand? So we notice we need to put another load of washing on, so we go and put the washing on. Come back, oh, still got a long way to go. Pop out into the garden, a couple of weeds to pull out, and uh, oh, that needs pruning. Go and get the pruning thing, prune that quickly, and then, oh, I've forgotten about this flower. Need to sort that out, deadhead this bush. Then suddenly you wake up with a cold sweat. The eggs rush back inside, and there's a bit of a burning smell and smoke. And you come to the, lift the thing off, and the steam nearly burns your face. And you look inside, and the bottom of the pot is burnt. And there's this lonely little rock-hard egg sitting in an empty black pot. The problem is, those of us who get sidetracked have forgotten the hourglass keeps running. And you know when we're living our life, we forget that life is temporary and for all of us, one day the sands of time will run out and heaven's morning will break. But we get sidetracked. We get busy in our job. We get busy in our sport. We get busy with our friends. We get busy with TV and Facebook and television and we lose sight of the sand that's running out. And we're not doing things for Christ. We're not focused on Christ. We're focused on all these other distractions and time is running out. And the old Scots reformers knew this because when they were buried, they would put the tools of their trade on their tombstone to say work is very important and you must enjoy your work and do it as unto God. Very, very important. But they also put another thing on. I don't know if you can see what I'm referring to here. Can anyone spot something on this headstone? It may be difficult to see. Those of you at the front, anything to do with what I've said? Hiram's pointing to, to bottom right corner. Yep, there we go. Philip's got it as well. I'm having trouble seeing my... Well, there it is anyway. What's that? That's an hourglass, an egg timer. On their headstone was put a, ti a timer to remind them that time is passing and soon it will be over. And what are you doing with your life? Life is very short, what are you doing with your life? Are you focused on so many other things and forgetting the important things of life? Jesus told the story of a rich man whose business was doing very well and his ground produced a lot of crops one year. And he said, what am I going to do? My barns aren't big enough. Where am I going to put all this produce, that I've, all the wheat and the fruit and the stuff that's grown? 
He says, I know what I'll do. I will tear down my barns and build bigger ones. And there I'll store all my crops and all my goods. So all my money, all my stuff, everything stored in these big barns. And then I'll say to my soul, well done, soul. You have much goods made up for, laid up for many years. Take it easy. Eat, drink, and be merry. And so there he is, beautiful barns, chock-a-block with all the stuff that he's, that he's earned. And he's now just going to eat and drink and be merry and enjoy life. God says to him, Thou fool, tonight your soul will be required of you. And then whose will all these things in the barn belong to? You leave them behind. You're not going to take them with you. You've spent all your time focusing on the barns and the crops and your busyness. You've woken up early in the morning. You've set up late at night. But tonight, God's going to ask you for your soul. And are you ready for that? There's a lovely old saying that says, it's only one life, it'll soon be passed. It's only what's done for Christ will last. You see, the rich fool's head was down. It was stretched out, looking after his money, counting things. Paul's neck was stretched up, looking for Jesus, looking for heaven. The rich man said, for me to live is money, to die is loss, because I'll leave it all behind, I'll lose it. Paul said, for me to live is Christ, and to die is gain. Don't be like the rich fool. The days are flying past, the sand is flying down in that hourglass. Don't waste a minute. Devote your life to Christ. Say, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. And that's the secret of a happy life. That's the secret of a happy death. That's the secret, secret of a happy eternity. Are you ready? This week when you get really busy, think to yourself, Woohoo, the hourglass is running out. I mustn't get distracted. I need to focus on Christ. When you think, I haven't got time to read my Bible today. I'm rushed. Think, Woohoo. The how glass is going, time is running out, I'll never have this chance again. When you think, we don't have time to pray today, think, time is running out, I'm not going to have this opportunity again. Then you'll be truly happy, despite your circumstances. Shall we pray?